Welcome to episode 62 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans, just outside Bayou St. John. Mm-hmm. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Swamp Flicks. <laughs> James, what have you been watching lately? As far as in the theaters, I I did see Mission Impossible. Fallout? Fallout. I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it yet? Well, MoviePass kind of crapped out. And I've been waiting for it to pop up on there. Yeah, the movie pass thing has been so weird lately. Like it's showing me times at like three in the morning, or it will have a showing, and then when I go to click on it, it just disappears. I don't know what's going on. It reminds me of Whack a Mole. Yeah, like it like pops up, and by the time you act on it, it's gone. Right. Well, so anyway, I just like sucked it up and when saw the new mission impossible and it's freaking badass. Yeah. I heard it's like it's, the best action movie since fury road. I mean, nonstop. I know Cruz like does his own stunts. He does some like absolutely insane stuff in this movie. It is definitely the best action movie I've seen by far this year. And I think you can make the case maybe best action movie in quite a few years. Did you see rogue nation? The last one? Mm-mm, no, I, I did a lot. I, it's a great series, uh, the ones I've seen, but I did miss that, that last one. So, yeah, I saw that. And then as far as in the theaters before that, I saw the sequel to Unfriended. Dark Web. Dark Web. I really enjoyed that. I liked it. I didn't like it as much as the original. It also reminded me a lot of Nerve. Yeah, definitely. It No, it was, it was really good. And it kind of, they had a trailer for this movie. Uh, searching I'm really excited for that I think is gonna take the genre to the next place as far as those like computer screen kind of films and it's cool to see John Cho in like a main role yeah yeah and I really liked him uh, in Columbus but anyway yeah Unfriended Dark Web was just like I love how they're still finding innovative things to do with that genre it hasn't gotten stale yet even though it seems like it should See, I thought that one, they kind of like pulled back a little bit. There's no ghosts or supernatural kind of things going on in it. No, it's more like info wars, conspiracy yeah. theory stuff. So I think it might be more palatable to people who don't regularly watch those like evil internet horror movies. Mm-hmm. But like I watch those all the time and I kind of like the ones that are like more ridiculous. But I think that's why people don't watch them. Like, yeah, I think the computer ghost stuff is like a turnoff for some people. So this one will be a little more like it's a little more grounded in reality. Although when you start to think about the intricacies of the conspiracy, (laughs) it really doesn't make much sense. But it's a really fun ride. Yeah. And the stuff that I really liked in it was like they had this like identity obscuring software. So it was like this impossible mask, this like digital glitch that covered up people's faces Mm -hmm. so they couldn't be detected on camera. And also they sort of visualize what the dark web looks like as like a river sticks. The river sticks kind of looks like an old, uh, like doom. Yeah, video totally. Game. Yeah. That was very cool too. And I thought the movie was like kind of going in this like supernatural direction where like, it was gonna be like these demons running this, uh, conspiracy. And I think I would have like flipped my shit for that version of the movie, but I really like the sort of more standard thriller it turned into instead. Also, one last little interesting thing about it is apparently it was released with two endings at the same time. Like, depending on what theater you went to, you got a different ending. And the ending I got was like, okay. And then I read what the other one was and I kind of wished. See, I I like the one I got a lot. So now I'm curious which one you saw. Well, hmm. 
Hmm. How can we say it with, <laughs> with Mine involves a vote. There's like a yes, no vote at the ending I saw. That's the one I saw too. I liked that ending. I, you thought do the you other know what the was other one? Yeah, I read it. Yeah. I, that sounds more hmm. up my alley. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, not having the movie pass, it's pretty much all I've watched in the and last couple weeks. you and I saw Sorry to Bother You together by chance. We were just at the theater together. Did see Sorry to Bother You, which I really, really liked yeah, as well. Uh, but yeah, what about yourself? I guess I wanted to point out a few like female directed genre films I've been watching because I've seen a few like really good ones. Uh, I recently finally got up the uh, nerve to watch Revenge, that like a uh, French rape oh, revenge yeah, thriller. I, I told you about that one. Did you Did see you? it? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. it. I think when we were doing our best of 2017 that mm-hmm. we hadn't seen in 2017, I had brought that up to you, but apparently it actually did come out this year yeah domestically Domestic- so it's a french movie that probably played like a couple festivals last year but yeah so i wasn't able to bring it up but it would have been just because um i think we're pretty similar in that we don't like rape revenge flicks that's a horrible and, and genre it's like one of the worst if not the worst genres out there but of all the ones i've seen this one got a lot right that the other ones don't i think i like felt a little more I know I made you watch that one very early on in this podcast because in felt like the actual rape part happens before the movie. And it's not even really referenced directly. Like you kind of just have to deal with the fallout of it. Uh, Cause a lot of like rape revenge movies start with like this sort of sensationalist, almost like titillating in this like subversive kind of way. Yeah. Depiction of rape. And then the violent retribution feels very hollow after that happens. Mm-hmm. And this one revenge sort of participates in that a little bit where like the camera's objectifying the main protagonist and like leering at her legs. But and... it doesn't objectify the rape itself. No. The rape itself is shot. I thought really well in a way where it doesn't glorify or exploit like what's happening. And that's kind of when I started like seeing where she was going with it. She, like you said, doesn't film the rape directly and it's more about, the complicity of like the other people that allow it to happen and then like sort of blame the victim. But I still was like a little iffy on the movie. And then the peyote kicked in. I love that scene so much. It goes so nuts. The main girl's like painkiller when she's like sort of stitching herself back together, like Rambo uh, before she gets her revenge. She sort of numbs the pain with like this peyote. She came in possession with earlier in the film. It just has some really trippy, bizarre visions. Yeah. And that's when the movie sort of like explodes the whole genre. It stops participating in it and just turns into this whole new weird thing. Yeah. And because of how it is extremely violent and bloody, but I guess like I spit on your grave is like the first one that pops in my mind. But with that one, because the rape scene was so long and drawn out, it felt like the movie really was about the rape, not the revenge. Yeah. And this one, because the rape scene is kept at like a minimal and then her revenge is so violent and bloody, it feels like the right uh, balance of the scales of justice, kind of. And it reminded me of a couple um, movies last year that felt like an echo of the new French extremity stuff from the early 2000s. Uh, There's that movie We Are the Flesh and Raw. And I felt like both of those were kind of a you know return to that like extreme practical effects gore like in your face with the violence 
this one's another French movie. It's another directorial debut, which both of those were as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think We Are the Flesh was a Mexican-French co-production, but it's still French. And yeah, it just felt like the details of the violence was so explicit and so over the top. It almost goes into like revenge fantasy where it's like beyond reality, which is partly due to the peyote as well. Mm-hmm. It's so fun, which is not something I'd expect to say if I had only watched like the first 15 minutes of it, you know? Yeah, I, I'm glad you liked it. I was pretty high on it as well. And I discovered this movie from the mid-50s called The Hitchhiker. Hmm. I've been watching a few noir films lately, just sort of by happenstance. So I thought I'd give this one a try because it was credited as the first noir directed by a woman. Hmm. It's called The Hitchhiker, and it's this pretty basic, like almost Roger Corman-type thriller where these two guys pick up an evil hitchhiker who holds them by gunpoint for the entire movie. Uh, but the movie is like way crueler than like most cheapo thrillers like that would have been back then. And it does this really interesting stuff with noir where the nighttime drives in the car feel a lot like the urban noir thrillers where like there's intense lighting. You barely see the hitchhiker's face in the backseat as he's pointing the gun. Mm-hmm. So you got that intense noir lighting and there's just like this really cruel violence. And he like forces them to play a game of William Tell and then in the daytime, it's so incredibly sunlit because they're driving around the Mexican-California border, like basically at gunpoint driving to this hitchhiker to safety uh, so you can get away with having robbed all these people and murdered people, which is not something you really see in noir, that like sort of desert landscape setting. It is yeah, something... It's usually like a big city environment. Yeah, people hiding in alleyways and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So that part definitely felt like Corman, like the you know desert setting is like such a cheap place to film it's something you can get away with on like no budget and this movie uses it to its advantage it's not like a symptom of the budget it's like this really isolating part where she shows these very wide shots of the car driving down the road and it's like there's no one around to save these two guys and it just helps propel the like thriller aspect of the plot well that's interesting because we were talking about revenge earlier which a large chunk of the movie takes place in the desert and you get that same since just a vast wilderness or you know nothing sort of landscape and these people trying to like outwit each other yeah it's a really cool like cheap place to place like that kind of movie and you really feel it in revenge too because the only escape is by helicopter Mm -hmm. which is something you like don't really see or hear until the beginning and the end of the film you just sort of accept for a fact that no one else can rescue her. She has to like fight her way out. Uh, And it's kind of the same in the hitchhiker too. Like these cops that are coming in to like kill the hitchhiker aren't necessarily going to spare the bullets for the two guys that are being held hostage either. Uh, So there's like a constant sense of danger throughout it. Hmm. It's only 70 minutes and it remains for the entire time. This like sort of like white knuckle, like gritting teeth kind of like, uh, can't tell if they're going to die or not. And it's like really killing me. Nice. I definitely want to check that out. And it's on the public domain, too. Like, so you can watch sort of shitty versions of it on, like, Amazon and stuff for free. But there's a really crisp, nice version of it on Canopy. Mm-hmm. I've actually been watching a lot of movies on there uh, since I got my library card hooked up to it. It's been great. I need to get that. And just one more I have to mention, because the screening was absolutely fucking insane, was I saw a Blood Diner in the back of a bar with director Jackie Kong in attendance. You and I talked about Blood Diner back when we did a Brian Usna episode. Mm-hmm. I made you watch that for like Movie of the Minute that time. I liked it. This was the rowdiest screening for a movie I've been to in so long. 
there were people on meth shouting throughout the entire movie, but you couldn't even hear them because the sound was so loud. They were sort of dancing to the lyrics of the movie. Like, just spoken dialogue. They were dancing as if they were listening to, like, a techno song. I did see one picture of... There was, like, drag queens there, too, right? So the bartender at the place... Uh, oh shit, I can't remember the name of the bar. It's a place on Frenchman right next to the Blue Nile. I'm not sure. The bartender is a huge Blood Diner fan from, like, the 80s and has this, like, shoulder tat of the movie's poster on their shoulder. And they convinced Jackie Kong to bring this, like, re-release print that she's been touring with for the past year to New Orleans to play at their bar where they bartend. And they had their friend, who's a drag queen, like, professionally, do them up as Sheetar, the uh, mm-hmm. evil, like, sort of zombie queen at the end of the film with the giant vagina uh, teeth for her chest. And they did a drag routine to Rob Zombie's Living Dead Girl as, like, an introduction to the film. Sounds so surreal. It was great, but it was, like, crazy that that person had never really done drag before. They just, like, learned this, like, craft to promote their, like, one of their favorite horror films. And the whole night just kind of felt like that. Like, it felt like probably, like, 12 people who were, like, really into the movie. And then, like, 20 to 30 people who were just, like, drunk out of their minds on Frenchmen, like, having, like you know, a standard gutter trash quarter night mixing together for this sort of like rowdy screening. So what what was Jackie Kong doing during all this? She was totally one of the partiers. Like, really? Yeah. She answered a few questions at the Q and a after while the projector was still going and the sound wouldn't turn off because the hippie guy who was running the projector was like starting fights with people who wanted to turn off the, the movie. So it wouldn't play a second time while she was talking. And she was, like, sort of answering questions over that, but you could tell she was a little impatient because what she really wanted to do was take shots of Jameson with her fans. Fuck yeah. (laughs) So she was just partying and having a good time. That sounds really fun. Yeah. I mean, a really fun movie in general, but you can tell when you're watching it at home that it would be perfect with, like, a midnight crowd because it's, like, a really, like, rambunctious, over-the-top, like, blood splatter comedy. Yeah, and it's got that punk attitude as well. Yeah, it's just, like, these kids in 80s California pulling off this, like, L.A. punk horror comedy. So to actually see it in a rambunctious crowd where people are, like, on the verge of puking. It's, like, the perfect environment. Yeah, it was great. And it's kind of crazy how many bars are, like, playing movies like that right now. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot, too, in, like, DIY sort of events. It's like, oh, this random bar in the quarter is showing... Like, a lot of times I have themes, you know, it's like Kubrick night or whatever. I don't know the legalities of just, like, you're not a movie theater, but you're just showing movies and charging people. I mean, theoretically, like, some prints, I think you can get away with, like, I think $200, about, maybe two to 300 which I guess you could clear with the alcohol sales to make it worthwhile. But I don't think they're operating on that level. Yeah. I think they're just sort of, like flying under the radar you know totally and it's just crazy how many of them are doing it all of a sudden yeah i mean what is there going to be some kind of task force that is going to come in and break up these dive bars that are showing movie? it feels unlikely i mean i wouldn't tattle but uh in this case the director came down with the print of their film so i guess yeah, it's all yeah. good in that respect well speaking of like over the top horror movies uh today we're actually going to be doing a horror episode which yeah, I feel it's like been we haven't a while. done a while. It felt kind of good to get back to that, I think. I do. I love horror films, and uh, I, I feel like we picked a good... I don't know. I was surprised by 
the quality of the films we watched for this episode. Yeah, I was kind of dreading a couple of them, and I wasn't really disappointed at all. And there's a couple classics we're going to be talking about, too, I think. And all that's coming up to you right Right now. now. They say seeing is believing, but only a split second of time separates the past from the future. The present is crushed between them. A thin thread of life in a skein of death. Laura! You are warned. Things are not what they seem. Don't look now. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. James, what did you make me watch? So I made you watch 1973 film called Don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Rogue, uh, who's done some other movies you might have heard of. Like, I think he did, what is it, A Picnic at Hanging Rock? Uh, um, he did The Witches with uh, the witches. Houston. Brittany more. recommended one last episode called Track 29. Is that Gary him Oldman. too? Yeah, it looks fucking crazy. I've never, I didn't hear about that one. It's like this weird incest, like psychological thriller. Dude, you have me at, well, psychological and incest. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I like incest movies. <laughs> uh, also, he did the la- uh, the man who fell to Earth, uh, the Bowie movie. And I mean, after watching this one, I definitely am down to watch anything by him. But I had heard this movie talked about in kind of like a cult classic sort of way as just like kind of one of those influential horror movies that you kind of have to see but I don't know why I waited so long to actually watch it and when I finally did I was absolutely fucking blown away this movie more than anything I've watched in a very long time pretty much is like what I'm about like these are the kind of movies I love and this is like a quintessential example. So, and that's why I forced you to watch it. <laughs> but anyway, the basic story is you have a couple, uh, John and Laura Baxter, who lose their young daughter in a tragic accident, a drowning accident. And he gets commissioned to restore a church in Venice. So they kind of, to get away from the despair and the loss of their daughter they take this trip to venice and i think what you can describe what starts to happen is i guess second sight or premonitions they both start noticing things and little creepy things off to the corner and they project like meaning onto them and they basically like start to think that their dead daughter is alive in venice well the husband the, the husband Sutherland does character, he gets the premonitions she contacts these psychics in venice who see the child right. around them and while he is denying that he also sees the kid she believes the psychics so he's kind of like gaslighting her a little bit he's like oh you're crazy there's no way that our daughter's spirit is hanging around us in venice but he's lying because he does see her himself and their premonitions are slightly different or their intuitions are different. Like you said, I think with Laura, it's more the idea that their daughter is always with them in spirit. But John starts to believe like, no, 
like I see my daughter walking these streets. She is physically here with us right now. And so that's where their paths kind of diverge. And he goes on this mission to try to find his daughter, which leads him to some very dark places. And the wife eventually leaves for a short time, leaving him in Venice alone to kind of try and work this stuff out. And what does it mean? And basically what we come to realize is his premonitions were wrong. He wasn't interpreting them in the right way. And it sort of leads to his demise. And that confusion starts very early on because the first scene of the movie when the daughter drowns, it's actually hard to tell in the editing whether it's a memory or a premonition of the future, the way it's set up. Because he's basically like doing his work in the house and he gets this look on his face as if he's remembering the time his daughter drowned. Like uh, a split second before it happens. Yeah, and then it turns out it's not a memory. It's like he's sort of sensing it in real time. And I think what happens later in the film, it's definitely up to interpretation because of the editing is so weirdly disjointed like that where you can't tell the timing of the visions as they come to him i think what's happening is he also sees visions of his daughter but they're mixing with this other premonition vision Uh, (laughs) right and it's hard to distinguish the two for the audience and for him well and that's definitely intentional by the director and the editor who i think needs i wish i had his name handy because i think this is one of the most beautifully edited films like with the themes we're talking about and the way it's edited in such a fragmented way to where uh, memories of the past are blurring with premonitions about the future and you're kind of getting the sense that they're confused about which is which the whole movie has this vibe of like mystery and confusion we don't know we're not privy to all the information and it's very like free association like the edits flow into each other in these like really natural ways where that throws off your sense of time too it's not like you're being jarred out of the present into a different time frame it's more like these things are sort of like mixing like you know two different flows of water becoming like one river together or something like there's something really fluid about the way story is told in the film um and the editing also is like a huge deal in the infamous like lovemaking scene at the centerpiece as well. Yeah. Which, I mean, if if we're going to talk about the movie, like the lovemaking scene, and I don't want to call it a sex scene because it is lovemaking. It feels like a couple that's been together for a long time, truly making love. And I think what kind of helps with that is it's edited where you're getting the sex in the moment, but then it flash forwards to them getting dressed afterwards. And it's this constant, they're passionate, they're in the moment. And then you see them after the fact, slightly distant from each other, just in their own space, getting dressed. And it creates coital, like afterglow kind of thing. Right. It just creates this beautiful, like sense of what a real relationship is like. And just like a little bit of backstory about that. Apparently, large part of that was because the censors wouldn't allow apparently if you see a male actor thrusting like you got to cut that because that's like sex unsimulated sex so to kind of appease the censors every time he would like move upwards to thrust it would cut to 
the getting dressed. And so kind of unintentionally or intentionally, it creates this beautiful juxtaposition that I think it really is one of the best lovemaking scenes I've ever seen. The rumor because of those edits is that they were actually fucking, but I don't believe it, honestly. No, that scene, I I read that too. And I, I think it is like a censorship issue. Also, like, it's kind of good that they did that because it's like, like you were saying, it makes it a very unique, like tender scene, but there's just something really intimate about the dressing part. Like, after is almost like as if not more intimate. Yeah. It feels like a real lived in marriage where like that part is just as important as the actual like fucking mm-hmm. so that they like, it's all of a piece. Like they're like equally weighted. Right. Uh, the way they're mixed together. And that's, I think important to the larger themes of the movie. Cause you know, the daughter dies in the first scene and that's the only time we really see them intimate together after the fact. Uh, and it, the whole movie is about this couple dealing with the grief of losing a young child and the return of that intimacy means like so much more. It's like them remembering how to be together. But while also with the dressing, like there's still a a distance, like something I took away from that scene was how grief can kind of create distance between people that do love each other. And it's not anyone's fault. It just, creates that and that scene really brought that idea home for me yeah just the two different ways they're dealing with like the reminders of the kid once they're in vendas that's like a rift because they're dealing with her loss in two completely different ways well and again it goes into like their premonitions or their feeling uh, again where she feels like the child is with them sort of this like omnipotent sort of thing and he i think has actually come to grips with it less and so he's just like actively looking for a physical version of her that doesn't exist. So he still needs to like deal with his grief, uh, which again, as the movie plays out, it it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where just every decision he makes just leads him closer and closer to his ultimate fate. And that's kind of where I'm really curious about the movie is like, what that ultimate fate without like giving it away like what that has to do with anything else in the film is like interesting to me Mm -hmm. because it feels like everything's about the kid everything's about the marriage and then the final blow almost feels completely separate from any of those concerns it was just like a confused mistake and it's like very difficult to pinpoint a reason why it happens narratively Besides the fact that it's like a shock to the audience, like what does that mean within the larger metaphor of the film is very much up to an interpretation, which like I think helps the movie stay with you. Cause you just sort of like keep thinking back to that image. You're like, why the fuck did that happen again? Like, <laughs> yeah. And that was the one I thought a lot about that too. And I've watched it um, twice now. And I don't want to call it a weak point. Cause I don't know if, I've even fully grasped what that could mean the very end. I think personally, I think you could have left that out and still had the same outcome without that final twist. And I think you would have still gotten the same idea. But without that twist, it definitely wouldn't really even be a horror film. Like that's the horror moment. The rest is like this sort of like creeping dread 
but it's all tied in this like supernatural drama. Like, there's definitely a feeling of the supernatural throughout. But the movie's not necessarily trying to scare you that often. I guess there's a couple moments where like the the psychic women can appear creepy. Well, what I found the scariest aspect of the whole movie was the city itself, which I think we should touch on. Like the city of Venice with all its canals and like narrow alleyways and the fact that there's never anyone there. Like the city is just empty most of the time. So you just have these characters sort of wandering around this darkened maze of a city. I, I thought that was the creepiest aspect to it. And that reminded me a lot of the, uh, the Wicker Man as well, the 70s one, where he's like mm-hmm. walking around that Scottish island. And uh, he's like, there are other people around, but he's like very much alone and like out of step with the culture. And he feels like everyone's in on something that he doesn't understand. Oh, yeah. Well, another brilliant choice I thought the director made was to not subtitle the Italian dialogue. Because, you know, he's constantly asking people for like directions or help and they speak to him in Italian but we never understand what they're saying and so we're kind of in his shoes like he doesn't really know what they're saying and it adds to this feeling of being out of place and so I thought that was a really smart choice and that kind of fits in with the the grief theme as well because it's like the world doesn't make sense to him anymore and now that his kid's gone like yeah. he's like trying to piece together something that makes sense out of these like disparate images. And he's literally in a place where he doesn't know the language and he doesn't know the layout of the city or the customs. And the audience is sort of made to do the same thing. Cause like things feel significant. Like there's like all these repeats of like, uh, you know, reflections in glass and reflections in water. Mm-hmm. It's like images are doubled and the daughter's uh, red raincoat that she drowned wearing um, repeats throughout in these uh, ways that make it feel like it's significant. But if you try to make any literal sense out of like why it's repeated, it, it doesn't really hold together. So you're kind of thrown off on the same way that he's trying to like figure out what his world means now. Yeah. I mean, so watching it a second time, like those motifs definitely were more clear of like, like you said, red, the color, red glass, water, I think they're so powerful for motifs because they can kind of mean anything like red can mean blood and life or it can mean death glass like something is shattered can't be put back together water the flowing of time so it's these grand like motifs that keep popping up in different ways and with some of them in like horrifying ways too the movie for me just works on so many different levels I think maybe the one thing that sort of like tempered my enthusiasm a little bit was just that it felt so familiar, even though it's like the strange jarring experience and probably in like 1973 would have felt like the weirdest thing. It's just sort of like seeped into other horror films in like a recognizable way. It kind of reminded me a little bit of that, that like slow burn horror of like the exorcist and hereditary, which also have like a child grief through line to it as well. But more importantly, and more directly, it reminded me a lot of like Jalo films. Yeah. Um, especially in like the weird editing and the disjointed imagery. And s- specifically, there's this Fulci film called The Psychic, uh, which has like, it almost feels like an homage in retrospect, where the premonitions are laid out in the same way where they're out of step with time. So you can't tell what's a memory, what's a distant past, what's the present, what's the future. And I think the movie's 
actually even play out in a very similar way as to how the uh, final reveal is, like, where that fits in with the timeline. I'm trying to be really vague here just in case someone's seen it. <laughs> yeah. And they're both very good, but, like, I had just seen The Psychic, and I, I'm more familiar with Jalo films, and I feel like this movie was, like, very influential, but I've already seen, like, the echoes, like, that, and the ripples. That's what I felt watching. It was, like, all these movies that I've, more modern movies that I like, I can tell are directly influenced by this one. Have you ever seen Alice, Sweet Alice? It's like Brooke Shields' first movie when she's yeah, a little kid. Yeah, I've seen that. There's like a rain slicker and like a uh-huh. creepy mask. I Even watching this, I was like, have I seen this before? Oh, I know. I'm just thinking of Alice, Sweet Alice. But I do. I see what you're saying. I, I still think it does that better than some of the, I don't want to call them Im- imitators. It's just so ubiquitous in the horror genre they were just influenced by it yeah but this does it so well and i i think something the director said he said it was like an exercise in film grammar and it really feels like he has more of a grasp on like what editing can do to a story and like also the score is really good and eerie and just like visual language like it feels like he has a stronger sense of film than some of the other things that have come after, especially with the editing. The editing is like works on like the visceral reaction, but also like the subtext of the story. That was the most impressive part to me too. Just the way it like sets up these like associations without really spelling them out. Like your brain has to make these like leaps where you're like, oh, I've seen that image repeated before, or the jump from one image to the next, you sort of like come up with this like linear narrative in your head when the movie's not doing that work for you. So like, yeah, the communication between different images is like very essential, like motion picture editing. Yeah. And I think it's like very intuitive here in a way that you don't really see that often. And one of the last things I just want to say is like, this movie is so like worth it to watch it a second or third time. There are so many little things I noticed because the first time you're so disoriented, you don't really know where the story's going. You don't really know what to look for, but just like as a brief example, like there's a funeral barge that plays a pretty big part towards the end of the movie, but that barge actually shows up like multiple times throughout in the background. Interesting. Just like, It'll just kind of be going on the canal, that same funeral barge, and it will like pop up in the corner to see it going down the canal. And it's constantly in the background. But when you're watching it the first time, you're like, you're not even paying attention because you don't know what it means. Yeah, I definitely did not pick up on that. And there's little stuff like that just floating in the background. It's like, oh, shit, that that had meaning. And it, it really is a really awesome movie and that's why it's so weird that the ending feels like it doesn't have meaning it's like not even frustrating it's just like a puzzle you know like almost like a david lynch thing where you're like what what is he trying to say with that i mean i have like kind of a not i guess a theory but i really we shouldn't spoil we could talk about it some other time yeah and i feel like i don't even know what you're gonna say but i feel like you could probably come up with the 10 more explanations that i'll be valid you know right no, I think people should just watch it for themselves and like, yeah, wh- what do you think it all meant? Yeah. It's re- it's a really great movie. Mm-hmm.
When Alfred Hitchcock brought Psycho to its frightening conclusion, he created one of the most deranged characters in the history of film. But the producers of Psycho 2 may have outdone even the old master himself. At least some people are likely to think that much crazier than the character of Norman Bates was the decision to bring him back in a sequel. Anthony Perkins, not surprisingly, doesn't agree. If you undertake to, to sequelize a movie, I think you're, uh, you're taking a risk. But I think all of show business is a risk. And if you really love the movie that you are uh, extending, then if you really love it, I think you have a much greater chance of, of achieving something good. I was just talking about with Don't Look Now, like the familiarity of it. Like I felt like I had almost seen it before, which is something that came up last year too when we watched Psycho, the Alfred Hitchcock thriller. Mm -hmm. Is a movie that I was like so familiar with the imagery of it that I hadn't realized that I hadn't actually watched it all the way through until I was like doing it for the podcast. And to complicate that experience where I knew less about a classic than I thought I did, uh, even at the time that we recorded that episode where we did Psycho and the Gus Van Sant remake of it, I didn't know at the time that there were four sequels to the Hitchcock movie. I, I had no idea either. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Because, I don't know, you kind of think, like, well, where else could the story really go? Like, how could it sustain four sequels? And, I mean, I know we'll get in individually to each one, but it actually can go some pretty cool places. I was very surprised. And you would think that we would be aware of these things because it wasn't even, like, they were before our lifetime or something. Like It was, like, right around when we were born, which I, I know we weren't paying attention but I have a familiarity with like 80s horror films more right. than any other decade, really. So you'd think that this would be on my radar. The original Psycho came out in like 1960, and the sequels didn't start until 1983. It's literally 23 years later. Yeah. After he gets let out of the insane asylum. And it's not like they were all flops either. Like this first one, um, Psycho 2 from 1983, uh, opened number two behind Return of the Jedi that was pretty big competition and it still held its own. It's like a pretty decent hit. Mm -hmm. And the only reason it was made is because the year before someone wrote a sort of parody of slashers, you know, early eighties, like slashers were still kind of a new thing, mm -hmm. but they were getting old enough that you could like single out tropes about them. So someone wrote this like satirical novel sort of making fun of them and they titled it psycho two. And the studio was like, we can't have them doing that. Isn't the premise of that like he goes to Hollywood? Yeah. Is that, like, I would love to see a version of that. And they might have been smart to, like, actually make that version of the movie. But instead they made these, like, much more faithful, sort of grounded, like, what would happen next in the story after the end of the first one kind of deal. While also giving it a more, like, 80s slasher bent. It's got, to kind of diminishing degrees, the psychological element but that kind of takes a backseat to the more straightforward slasher stuff yeah and like in 1960 there was no slasher film like psycho and peeping tom came out the same year and they felt like the very early stirrings of what eventually would become that genre like over 10 years later they practically invented the slasher between the two of them so by the time these sequels came out there were a lot more tropes uh that the psycho sequels could follow and they feel a little more conventional as a result yeah the teenagers you know smoking weed in the basement or yeah the, it, it kind of plays around with all the 
tropes we're used to. And all sequels to slashers kind of do that too, where they ramp up the violence and the nudity and the sexuality because they have to kind of like shock you out of like feeling familiar with it, mm-hmm. uh, which is very weird to see in these like follow-ups to like a Alfred Hitchcock classic, I think. And this yeah. one is willing to introduce you or like reintroduce you to the original immediately starting with like the black and white shower stabbing, which is kind of like the birth of the slasher from the original. Like it just shows you that scene first yeah, off. I thought I thought the beginning of Psycho 2 is one of the laziest beginnings to a sequel ever. It's like, we're just going to show you the most iconic scene from the first film to just kind of get you started. It's like an introduction. But I wonder how much people needed that reminder because the original came out like before VHS and like home video was an industry. So, you know, a lot of movies back then would have like an accompanying book or like a novelization or a picture book to sort of like keep the memory alive in your head. Mm -hmm. But it's possible that unless you like caught it on TV or something or like some sort of like repertory screening of it, you might not have like seen the movie in a long while. I get, I mean, I hadn't really thought about that. My initial reaction was just like, this is so shameless. Yeah, we do not need that in 2018. Like, we know what that scene looks like, and we have like almost an over familiarity with it where we feel like we've seen the movie if we haven't seen it. I guess maybe we took it for granted how iconic it was. Maybe it wasn't as iconic in the. Although, uh, yeah. It it definitely was, yeah. So much so that there was a documentary on it last year called like uh, 7852 which is like about the number of setups and cuts in that one scene. And they like do a whole documentary just on the damn that, that sounds the construction interesting. Of it. Yeah. I mean that, that was like some of my least favorite parts of the sequels was the like obvious throwbacks to the original, like the blood circling the drain. I want to say every single one of these has yeah. some sort of callback to the shower peephole stabbing scene. Yeah. I think every single one It's like, I don't know. Yeah. I guess, I guess a little we lazy. need that. A yeah. little lazy, but anyway. Well, also lazy is the setup to the sequel, which is Norman gets released from the mental institution 20 years after the original events and just sort of re- And they just starts... send him back to the Bates Motel. Yeah, he just like starts his business back again. Like that's going to make him rehabilitate or stay sane. And immediately, once he gets back in the house he hears his mother's voice and he's like a frozen little boy again and starts taking her commands for granted and like following them and killing people. Like it, it's like instantaneous. The second he gets back yeah, in the house, 23 years of mental health progress down the drain. <laughs> Cause your social worker, whoever decided to send you like right back to your house of horrors where all this shit started. Seems like such a, a bad plan to keep someone on the straight and narrow. And he has this weird like double job where like he starts working on the motel to get it back to normal. Cause uh, Dennis Franz is taking it over and turning into this like basically a brothel. He plays such a good dirt bag. I don't think I've seen him in something since we watched blowout for like a movie of the month, like a couple years ago. And he was so gross and sleazy in that movie. And he's like playing the exact same character in here. Just this like sweaty pervert. Even in like NYPD blue, he's still kind of, that's i mean that is his vibe he's very good at it <laughs> yeah norman confronts him too he's like what kind of motel are you running here he's like the kind that makes money oh uh, i will say <laughs> one thing i loved about the dennis franz character is how multiple times he calls him a psycho 
which is one of those things I love. I love when movies like someone says the title of the movie, you know, like he repeatedly calls him psycho. I love it. And it's like Norman Bates is a pretty iconic name. You don't have to like rebrand him as psycho as if that's his first name. Get out of here. You lunatic. You psycho. (laughs) Uh, And it's like uh, branding conscious. It's very much like, you know, Freddie and Jason were like one namer killers by the time this came out. So it's like trying to make him a Chucky or a Jason, you know? Well, and that is, that's how I felt towards the end of the sequels that he had just become like a Michael Myers or something. But this first sequel, I do think its setup is a little lazy uh, or a little obvious, but I I loved where this went. It It's basically him being gaslighted yeah. for an, an, an hour and a half and just like slowly going insane. It's not his fault. He doesn't need much of a push to become a killer again, but no. someone, someone provokes the bear immediately. Basically, he gets like a, a second job on top of like, taking this hotel back over from Dennis Franz. He gets this like job at a diner nearby off the highway in the kitchen. So he's working with the giant glistening kitchen knife that he like stabbed people with in the first movie. And just menacingly cutting lettuce. I will say him preparing lettuce for that diner is like the most tense. I think I was during any of these movies because Dennis Franz is like obviously bothering him in the background and like provoking him. And he starts chopping lettuce faster and faster. The more he gets provoked Mm-hmm. And nothing really comes of it. It's not like you kind of expect him to like accidentally cut off his own thumb or something the way the scene is building. But instead, it just makes you like incredibly like anxious. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with Anthony Perkins. I mean, he really does hold these movies together with his acting. I haven't seen him in that much outside of the Psycho films, but he's a really good actor. Um, he is one of my favorite films of all time, which I made you watch before, mm-hmm. Crimes of Passion. So fucking he's good really in that. really good in that. But yeah. he's basically playing like a Norman Bates archetype in that film. Uh, same as in the uh, Diana Ross film, Mahogany. He plays an artist, photographer type, who then just turns into like Norman Bates halfway through the film and becomes like an antagonist out of nowhere. So he's definitely typecast after what? making big in the he Hitchcock just, movie. He just plays that so well the like wholesome and creepy and the the way he switches between them on like very short notice and that's how he goes under the radar as a killer is that he's like a handsome white guy who can like smile his way through suspicion which makes it somewhat believable that he finds two new victims to pull into his orbit in this diner job there's a waitress and a sort of owner of the diner this like older woman uh, and they both, like, become quick friends with him and, like, have sympathy for him, which you buy as an audience because he's, like, a nice guy with, like, a kind look. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that they both have their own ulterior motives in f- befriending him. The waitress, because she is joining forces with her mother to gaslight Norman into thinking that his his mother is back so that he can be sent back to the mental institution. Which actually, that did kind of surprise me. Yeah, I didn't know that was going there either. I did not. I thought she like had good intentions. I did not know she was in on it with her mom to like drive him insane. So like that was a nice twist. And then at the very end, there's another nice little twist. And I think she's supposed to be Marion Crane's niece, if I remember correctly, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, I had no idea they were like going that far into the mythology. I thought she was just 
around to be like a younger sort of love interest for this older man. Well, because you do wonder at first, like, why is she even willing to like stay in this older guy's house? And she wakes up in the middle of the night and he's staring at her sleeping, holding a giant glistening butcher knife. And she's just like, Norman, what are you doing? Yeah, she's like the most trusting roommate in the world. <laughs> somebody she just met like a week ago. It's oh, so creepy. Man. Uh, and yeah, it turns out it actually does kind of make sense because she knows what she's doing. She's trying to get him to show these violent urges. It's very dangerous business. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're really flirting with disaster there. And the um, kills don't come that long after that. Like, it's pretty easy to provoke him back into his old ways. And there aren't a lot of kills in this first one, but they are very brutal. They're more gory, obviously, than the original. I mean, I think... Didn't Dennis Franz get, like, his mouth cut open? Yeah, it's or... disgusting. I think the uh, mother character, who would be Marion Crane's sister, gets stabbed through the head. If that was this first one, it might have been the next movie. Now, let's be clear, though. He doesn't actually kill anyone in this first movie. He doesn't kill Marion Crane's sister? No. I took that to be his, spoiler, his mother, his oh. real mother, did that because she's trying to protect her son interesting so that's what i liked about this first sequel is that norman doesn't kill anyone the entire movie uh which is very much like jason right in the first uh friday the 13th movie. it is and, but he does kill his supposed mother yeah that's probably the most daring thing this film does with the movies it complicates who is norman's mother unnecessarily because when we talk about the third movie the third movie undermines everything we see in this movie. And then to further complicate it, the fourth one undermines everything that came before. <laughs> there is, uh, that's like in my notes, I just wrote just in bold letters, no continuity. <laughs> there is no continuity between the four main movies. Yeah. The number two, the lady who's the older woman at the diner is basically like, your mother was not your mother. She was your aunt. I'm your real mother. Right. And then the third movie's like, actually, that woman's a liar. And she kidnapped you briefly, but you were with your mother the rest of the time. And then the fourth movie doesn't acknowledge anything <laughs> with the sister. And actually, in the third movie, I think they say that the sister of Norma Bates killed his father in like a jealous rage because uh, she stole him from her but then in the fourth movie as an aside he just says oh yeah my dad died uh from bee stings just this random aside that totally undermines the third film which you can kind of see like why no one would care about continuity because none of this feels like canon at all like it feels like i don't want to say cheap cash-ins because the movies are actually like pretty decent overall mm -hmm. uh but it doesn't feel like untouchable lore that you can't mess with like they all feel pretty confident in like fucking up what the last movie did true as long as they like recall enough from the original hitchcock movie they feel pretty okay with like muddling the details with any other sequels that they might be messing with but just watching them like kind of back to back in a short amount of time you just want some overall narrative to hold on to and there is none there's no like mythology really besides what we learn in the first film and a lot of that might have to do with the fact that psycho 3 bombed after the second one did fairly well uh after the third one the rest were on television so they're really under the radar the third movie 
from 1986 was directed by Anthony Perkins. And it's the only movie he directed besides this like cannibal comedy that I've never <laughs> heard of before. And yeah, it made significantly less money, but I actually liked this one a lot stylistically. Yeah, I agree. Perkins was doing some really weird shit in this film. And between two and three was when he worked with Ken Russell on crimes of passion. Oh, I think true. you can feel that influence. It's got on this. that. Like I was going to, say with the lighting yeah it's really strong lighting in this movie and it is really campy in it like stylistically and even with some of the characters like okay the movie starts this is one of my favorite opening scenes to a movie ever is just a nun screaming there is no god (laughs) and then as kind of an homage to vertigo i think yeah because there's like a fall from like a great height yeah and this like tower She's trying to commit suicide, but she accidentally pushes, um, you know, her sister or mother in the covenant or church, whatever, like to her fall. And then she leaves in disgrace and she gets picked up by this drifter musician guy called like Dwayne Duke. who like Watch the guitar. Well, (laughs) I and I loved him like. You know, his character is a slime ball. No, he's a scumbag. He like tries to rape a nun within the first like ten minutes of the film. Yeah, and then when she shows up at the hotel, like he's in charge of the front desk now. He's like, Oh, you know, like I just got a little out of control back there, like don't worry about it. But um yeah, just like with the the suicidal nun and the rapist drifter characters and the the strong lighting and like stylized way it was shot like it does feel way more yeah more campy than the other films yeah i like like it the intense religious imagery shows up in these really like weirdly associative ways too where like the nun tries to kill herself on a bathtub it's like her second suicide attempt it's like really gnarly wrist wounds uh and that seems very gross Uh, and as she's like fading away norman is peeping through the eye hole that he loves so much and he like recognizes that she's in peril and ends up like going to save her. And when he's, when she sees him, she has like a vision that he is the Virgin Mary and it becomes this really strange, like religious image. When he's dressed up as his mother, mother at yeah. that point. And that's weird too. Cause like he saves her from committing suicide. And then very shortly after she's like, I want to date this guy. And very weird. Yeah. It just doesn't feel right. Like that jump. It's also notable that she's played by the uh, woman who plays the daughter in Mommy Dearest. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of an infamously bad melodramatic actress in that film. And I think that carries over here, but it fits the material really well in both cases. One thing I noticed across all the movies was the strong acting. I thought she was probably the weakest actress or actor of any of the films. But I think she's going with the material. It's that sort of movie. But, uh, I mean, the Drifter is a bad actor, too, but his sort of over-the-top villainy, pretty much like wrestling heel, like yeah. trying to like be a dick every syllable that comes out of his mouth. There is one scene with the the Duke character where after hooking up with a lady from a bar, he's like naked and he has a, a lamp yeah. on his dick. Do you know the scene I'm talking like, So that was the part where I was like, oh shit, this is just crimes of passion. Because the lamp is lighting the room in this like really weird underlit way and the shiny wallpaper in the motel 
has this sort of like purple cross lighting, which is very Ken Russell. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently Norman wanted to shoot that guy with like full frontal nudity. And the guy said no. And the lamp was kind of a compromise, but just this like seedy vision of this man with like a lamp, like a bed- bedside lamp, like where his genitals would be. It's so good. And he's got porn spread out and he's ha- just had sex with a sex worker and like throws her cash and like, uh, kicks her out, kicks her out, throws her like, clothes in the dirt it's like this is a such a gross like gritty nasty weirdly impulsive scene i thought like as a director like perkins really sold like the grotesque sexuality of it really well well and with with his uh death as well in that same motel room there's like looney tunes being played in the background he's getting beat with his own guitar yeah he tells everyone watch the guitar every time they like accidentally bump into it and it feels so good watching him get beat to death with the one thing he cares about. <laughs> uh, I know. As a guitar player, I just like imagine like, yeah, that's how that's how I'm gonna go out. Someone just <laughs> beating me to death with my own instrument. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't know. It de- <laughs> it depends on who's doing it, I guess. But I would say the sex worker who gets killed actually has like the gnarliest death. Um, after he like throws her oh, in the phone booth. In the dirt. So gross. Like she calls for help in this phone booth still naked, like clutching her clothes and someone starts stabbing her through the glass and she's like stepping barefoot on the glass in the bottom oh, yeah. of the booth. The stab wounds are like very explicit and graphic. It's definitely the most violent of all the films, I would say. And it got a genuine reaction out of me out of this like campy over the top film, like that stuff and like the seediness of the motel room exchange right before it, like it actually really unnerved me. It made me feel gross and I appreciated it. Yeah. I think it sucks because where the movie falls apart is towards the end where, like we talked about before, with fucking with... The they start undoing mythology. the plot changes in the one before. Yeah, it, and as this like reporter character is getting stalked by Norman Bates, she just unloads. It's like exposition dump about like, oh no, that w- the woman from the last movie wasn't your real mom. She was your mom's sister and... She uh, tried to kidnap you and all this stuff. And it just, oh man, it was so pointless and just undoes everything from the previous movie. Yeah. That was an arc I noticed between Psycho 2 and Psycho, or between the first movie and the sequel. And then it kind of repeats itself with the third and the fourth movie where you like build a story up and then you kind of undercut it and say like, no, that's not what was really happening and in the same way the fourth one kind of undercuts the third one by not even acknowledging that any of this stuff happened also That's the weirdest thing about this series it's like the movies are good but it, it's mythology and it's canon is all screwed up did you watch uh bates motel from 1987 the tv movie no i i didn't watch that one that one also does the same thing Tell me a little bit about because it, it sounded interesting. I like seemed like they were going with more of like a Twilight Zone because it was a pilot for a show, right? So it was going to be the supernatural thing. Well, it's a backdoor pilot, which is something we've talked about on the show before because we watched Brittany and I watched a backdoor pilot for a Romeo and Michelle High School Reunion TV series. They tried to reboot it with Katherine Heigl for ABC Family, and it was terrible. And Cece and I watched a Riverdale 20 years later, like Archie's all grown up now, backdoor pilot for a TV show. 
also terrible, in which Jughead raps. And this movie was also very bad. Uh, and it's the same kind of setup where they try to make this, like, Bates Motel setup, like, palatable for, like, a week-to-week thing. So you don't have any of that grotesque phone booth stabbings from Psycho 3. Mm-hmm. Everything's a lot cleaner. Bud Court plays Norman's roommate from the mental institution. And when Norman dies, he, like, wills the hotel to him. Wait, Bud Court, what... Uh, Harold and Maude is like... Okay, I know his face. Yeah, yeah, Harold and Maude. But this is like 87, so this is like an older, weirder looking Bud Court. So did this come out before the fourth movie? Yeah, this is the third sequel, technically. But it does not take into account anything that happens in two or three. In this version, Norman Bates basically dies in the mental institution. Because he's there for life after the first film. What a confusing (laughs) (laughs) plotline in this whole thing. It's so confusing. Uh, and Bud Court basically talks to Norman throughout the series. We see Norman one time in like almost news footage where he's getting put into a police car after the events of the first film. He's not played by Anthony Perkins at all. Huh. He's played by some bit actor because he's only in the show for like two seconds. The rest of the show, Bud Court carries around this urn with Norm's ashes in them and talks to it. Where he's like, I don't think this is going to be such a good idea, Norm. Like, I missed the hospital. <laughs> and the show has this sort of, like, goofy humor like that. Like, when the judge is reading the will where the motel gets, you know, willed to Bud Court, uh, he's like, I, Norman Bates, of sound mind. And he, like, rolls his eyes like, yeah, that guy was a real sound of mind. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, it's just really corny humor. But I will say... They set up the show wonderfully for a week-to-week anthology, even though it was never picked up for series and the pilot sort of failed. So it would basically be about the guests that are staying at the hotel, which makes sense. Yeah. So all the setup with, like, Norman willing the motel to Bud Court, and he, like, has this love interest in Lori Petty. I don't know if you remember her. She was, like, 10 girl. yeah. Yeah. That stuff's awful. But the first story, as far as, like, the people visiting the motel... This, like, woman goes there to kill herself in a bathtub, very much like the nun in the third film. Mm -hmm. And she's sort of saved by these, like, teenage ghosts from the 1950s who are throwing this, like, party elsewhere in the motel. And she has, like, a high school dance with them. One of them is played by Jason Bateman, like a young Bateman. Oh, wow. And she has, like, kind of, like, a romantic flirtation with him. Um, And the reveal that they're all ghosts is actually, like, effectively handled and kind of creepy- and it's like, oh, I could actually see how the show would work from week to week as an anthology series. But it just didn't, it just didn't get picked, picked up, up, which is fine because the movie overall was terrible and the whole like Bud Court setup was really bad. And eventually they did make a Bates TV show uh, more recently. I watched about half of the first season and it was all right. Yeah, I heard it was okay. Yeah. I heard Rihanna was in the final season, which is interesting to me. I think she plays the Marion Crane character or something like that. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, not that interesting of a film, but it did mark, like, Psycho's sort of step down from the theater to TV, where it, like, lived forever, both in that second Bates Motel show that was more recent, and then also in Psycho 4, The Beginning, which is a half-prequel, half-sequel that played on Showtime in the early 90s. But I think this one actually got pretty solid ratings from what I read. It was, like, 10 million viewers which i don't know that seems like a lot yeah and it's like cable kind of 
sleazy Showtime movie. So like, there's like immediate tits and blood like in the first like five minutes. Oh yeah, and it's directed by Mick Garris, who is sort of notorious for making these like cheapo sleazy movies. Oh, what? He worked with Stephen King a lot, and he also started that Masters of Horror anthology series. Do you remember in the early 2000s where like you know Joe Dante and John Landis and Oh, they got a different director to do. Okay, yeah, it was yeah. supposed to be like a movie a week, but each movie was like an hour and ten minutes. Well, speaking of John Landis, he makes an appearance in this. Yeah, probably the most extensive John Landis cameo I've ever seen in a movie. Like he pops up in a lot of McAris films and like these like quick cameos, like a single scene. He'll play like a guy at the morgue or something. Right. But uh, in this film, he plays the radio technician, and he's throughout the film like working in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mick Garris also directed Hocus Pocus, which I find hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's a good movie. I like that movie, too. Yeah. He also directed Sleepwalkers, the Stephen King film with the incestuous werecats. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that one. That is so close in tone with this film. Huh. Mostly because of the incest. They really drove that point home. <laughs> like, they just hammered it home for, like, a good chunk of the movie was, like, the Oedipus complex just beating you over the head with it. So a lot of the sort of modern interpretation of Psycho is sort of reexamining the problematic issues with like Norman's sexuality and the cross-dressing particularly. Basically saying it has like trans-misogynistic implications in, in the 2010s and plays into this trope of like, you know, men who dress outside of their gender being like evil killers. This movie leans into that so much worse than the original <laughs> and plays with all these other psychosexual hangups on top of it. Well, I mean, I guess the mother is the mother that awful. Yes. In this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she doesn't like beat him. What is it? What is the worst she does in this movie? Like getting, having him get into bed with her, with his she underwear encourages on? flirtation with him. And then when he becomes aroused, she shames him for it. Forces him to That's dress weird. outside of his gender, <laughs> tells him his penis is like an evil thing. It's basically like Carrie's mom is like the kind of like repressed religious, lock your kid in the closet, make them feel bad for their like sexual body, and then like shaming them. She basically like crafts a killer out of this young child. And this is revealed to the audience in flashbacks as Norman is on a talk radio show reminiscing about his childhood. Well, and also like openly admitting to contemplating murdering again yeah he's gonna kill his wife on his birthday because Because she wants to get pregnant well yeah and because she is pregnant even though he told her he didn't want his seed you know passed down to his kid the evil that is inside of him will get passed to his children and i thought that was interesting it's almost like a nature versus nurture thing like it's like oh i'm evil because my mother was evil and she's like no we'll love the child it won't be the same yeah what we see is that he's like serially abused by his mother throughout like you said not physically she doesn't like hurt him she just like gives him all these like weird ass hang-ups that sort of snowball into the psycho killer we know well yeah like when she she's scared of lightning and thunder so she's like oh norman come lay in bed with me but oh you're you're wet you have to take off your clothes and then getting like mad when he gets an erection yeah it's just creating like you said just psychosexual hangups and even younger she like wrestles with him and tickles him weird and like 
at his fa- own father's funeral, he's trying to sit still and be serious. And she's like tickling. tickling. I mean, it's fucked. <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's good. Really uh, the radio show Norman's calling into the topic is what makes boys kill their mothers. <laughs> And the uh, guest author is the author of Mother Killers, Boys Who Kill Their Mothers. (laughs) So if if the third movie was a little campy, this one is like very over the top. But see, okay, it is campy, but it's more like, it feels more like a lifetime sort of movie. Like it's a psychosexual drama. It's not as gory and its characters aren't really as campy as the third movie. It's almost as if McGarris's favorite part of Psycho was like that final scene where they explain Norman's like psychosexual hangups. He's like, yeah, I want to get more into that. Yeah. Let's just I want do to that. explain that. Let's just, <laughs> and then it, like his own imagination is just coming up and the stuff. Oh man. The flashbacks sort of come up out of order. Like it starts with Norman's first kill and it's this like teen girl who wants to sleep with him. She, how does he always get like attractive Women that just handsome. show up and like, I, hey, let's go fool around. Well, two reasons. Because he's handsome and two, because these sequels want to up the sex. Because uh, they're like 80s and 90s horror But it doesn't really sequels. feel believable to me that he would be surrounded by all these women that want to sleep with him. I mean, do you think that was written because it was natural to the plot? Or do you think it was positioned up front, out of order, so that Showtime can like show boobs in the first like five minutes of the movie? That one. <laughs> definitely that one that kill is like pretty basic slasher sequel stuff um and not the good stuff really like the really sleazy stuff and then it goes further back and shows like his mother sort of training him to be this like freak over time through these like very nefarious we do have to mention the child version of norman bates is played same kid that played elliot in (laughs) et which i just was so weird when he popped up it's like what? Like you're, you're a young Norman Bates. Okay. Which film is better? It's hard to say. It is. It's really. It's all about taste. <laughs> but uh, I thought you know, effectively, Anthony Perkins still really works for this franchise. Like he is basically dying on camera of AIDS-related complications. Mm-hmm. He's like very close to the end of his life by the time this movie was made. So he has a sort of like gaunt like horrifying visage also because you know i like anthony perkins in these movies a lot so like watching him sick in this is like hard to watch yeah but he's also just like underlit uh as he's on the phone and it's got this very like almost like creep show kind of like comic book framing Mm -hmm. and lighting and i just found him really effectively creepy the same way that like any old man talking about murder on like a radio dial-in show would be creepy and the movie also mixes him in with the uh memories So, like, anytime Norman is alone and, like, thinking as a child and, like, sort of, like, reflecting on how horrible his life is, Anthony Perkins sort of steps into the frame. Yeah, he he might just be, like, outside the window. Yeah, and he's, like, explaining how he got there and the two versions of him mixed timelines. But speaking of his performance, I thought at the end what really kind of made this movie effective, even though it's probably my least favorite of all of them, it's still not bad. In the sense that I thought the climax where he's really wrestling with like, do I want to kill my wife and my child or do I want to like have a happy life? And his performance, like he gives a good portrayal of that struggle. And in the end, when he burns the house down, it's a honestly, it's a great scene where like his 
demons sort of are coming back to haunt him. Yeah, that's where the timelines really start mixing. Like, all the ghosts from his past and all the, like, figures in his life, all the different versions of his mother and all his victims sort of exist in the house together. And he has to confront them one at a time. Yeah, and he's burning it down. He's struggling to get out. And he, you think he's going to be engulfed by the flames. But he eventually does get out. And then you hear at the very end, like, a baby crying. Which does not deal with the themes of the film in any way. It's almost like the movie goes to this sort of like natural Norman shedding his past and everything. And then they added the baby crying in the basement as an afterthought to like open the door for a sequel. And like maybe like, we'll still like be able to do another one. I don't know. I guess thematically it worked because maybe his fears were right. The evil is going to get passed to the child. So we don't know. There might be future psychos out there. And I got to admit, I do think, what you're saying about like Anthony Perkins selling the gravitas of the film, like that's legit. Mm -hmm. But I also liked the weird incest stuff with the mom a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It just, I mean, it made me very uncomfortable. And I I like that stuff. Like we are the flesh last year was one of my favorite movies Uh of the year. Brittany describing that track 29 movie. Like, Oh, I'll watch that. Uh, My buddy Pete Moran from the, we'd love to watch podcast was a guest on this show last December and we mm-hmm. talked about McGarris's Sleepwalkers and the nineteen eighty three Cat People and I love both of those movies and they're both like incest heavy psychological thrillers. And I think on a very basic level, it's just a cheap way to creep somebody out. Like <laughs> right. it requires no money and it instantly works. Like I was squirming through most of this film, watching just his mom tickle him and like wrestle him and shame him for having a boner like that stuff was effectively creepy even if it was a cheap shot well and there's a reason like the idea of a oedipus complex goes back centuries i mean it it is like kind of a universal thing that we can all agree is like pretty fucked up (laughs) yeah Uh, but yeah like i don't know i i didn't mind that the movie went there because it where else was it gonna go after the third one uh, are you going to go more slasher him just like kind of killing more and more people? You kind of have to go into his past and show the self with the mom, which it had to be pretty screwed up for him to end up the way he did. Yeah. I don't know. I, I got to say, like, I actually liked this one more than even the second one. Oh, really? I just really like the style of it. Uh, it is definitely the sleaziest the most reprehensible on like a moral level uh but i like the -the over-the-top style of it which i think is what i liked in the third one a lot as well Uh, i think the second psycho movie is probably my least favorite of like the official sequels just because it is a pretty straightforward follow-up outside the lettuce chopping i think the second movie is i think most people would consider it the best in the sense like the acting is the best the story is the most like i guess standard or coherent but my personal ranking i i like the third one me too the most and then it's kind of a tie between the second and the fourth for me but i really was like my main takeaway from all this was like it's a pretty good franchise like as far as the quality it put out and that was really surprising because like you said at the beginning i didn't even know these movies existed. Yeah, like the only really embarrassing one is the Bud Court made for TV movie, which which I, was trying to be a different 
thing. Yeah, and it's really corny in a way that would have to be. Like, you can't do Norman resisting the urge to fuck his mom as, like, a weekly television show on ABC. Well, they kind of did with the the more recent... Yeah, and it's, it's a different TV time now than it was in the late 80s, though. Yeah, yeah, Like, you can have Game of Thrones where there's, like, incest plots every week now, and people will tune in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think people would have tuned in for a weekly incest show. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, yeah, they like took all of the danger out of Norman Bates in the original and like just used the motel itself as like this background setting. That I think is the more embarrassing one. Um, especially in the TV movie, they do this really cheap comical gag where Lori Petty has a job for a local fast food restaurant where she dresses up like a chicken mascot mm-hmm. and those jokes are old immediately. <laughs> And then they only get worse the more they repeat. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's the only embarrassing one. I think I think two, three, and four are all fairly okay slasher follow-ups. And the third one particularly has like really interesting stylistic. I wish Anthony Perkins would have directed more movies post, you know, his time with uh, Ken Russell. Yeah, I'm a little like curious. you say with the religious stuff too. Like I got a lot of those undercurrents in the third one. I think that's why I liked it the most. Also, he was a bisexual man in his private life and supposedly like didn't have sex with a woman until he was like well into his thirties. He was like very nervous around women. So I think he did see some of himself in the Norman Bates character. Mm -hmm. And I think that's expressed most like convincingly in the third one where he has this like fascination with the nun character and they like sort of communicate in this like same level. And there's like a tragedy to that. And then the camera's willing to objectify the male bodies and the female bodies equally, especially with the lamp set up mm-hmm. uh, in that seedy, seedy fucking motel room. There's some like really like the, the psychosexual stuff in the fourth movie is like really gross. The third one's sleazy. Mm-hmm. Like there's almost something actually sexy about it. The way that like early pornography from like New York city has that like grimy, like the neon tinged. Yeah. You could just smell the like amyl nitrate and uh, lube <laughs> in the background. Yeah. And yeah, that's directly holdover from Crimes of Passion, which is like one of my favorite films. So I'm sort of like predisposed to like that. I think, yeah, it's like the third one is more Cinemax and the fourth one is more like Lifetime vibe. Which is weird because it was on Showtime, which is very much like Cinemax. Yeah. (laughs) It's Lifetime with boobs and blood. Uh, So like if you were 14 and saw that film in 1992, uh, whenever it was released... There's a good chance you'd have fond memories about it, I think. It's such a weird, like, gross movie. But it feels like it's four teenage boys. Would you say any of these are, like, essential? Like, I'm even saying, like, I liked Psycho 3 a lot as, like, a stylistic experiment. I don't think I could tell somebody, like, you, you have, have to, to see that. No. That's a tough thing, though. Like, I don't feel like any of them rise to the level of greatness to where you need to see it. But I almost feel like if you're into the first movie, like, why not give these a chance? Like, none of them are an A+, plus, but most of them, if not all, are, like, a B range. Like, they're pretty good. Like, it's a good way to pass the time. It's not... None of them are bad. I think that's where we landed on Gus Van Sant's remake, too, uh, when we talked about that. It was, like... Yeah, maybe not as essential as the original, but as a stylistic experiment and as like a follow-up, like it's definitely interesting and you should see it. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, like, besides the um, TV show, the one I didn't see, which sounds pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, I think they're all worth worth a watch. And I'll try to report back if I ever watch that cannibal comedy that Perkins directed. It does not look nearly as, like, stylistically over the top as Psycho 3, but I'm definitely curious about it. i out, yeah. Next time we talk, you and I, we're going to do another psychological thriller. Just sort of Ooh. follow this up. I love psychological thrillers. Um, and before that, Brittany and I are doing another ABBA episode because uh, we talked about Mama Mia in the last time. So I think the next two episodes are kind of a continuation of things we've been working at. But I'm excited to like keep digging into the vein. And all that's coming up in a couple weeks, and we'll see y'all then. If you want to check out any other recommendations, we've been posting a review a day on SwampFlix.com, as usual. I don't know how long that's going to last where I can keep up a daily grind. I have been doing this thing lately, though, where every Wednesday or Thursday, I look at the movies that are coming to New Orleans in the next week. Mm-hmm. And instead of like doing a review that day, I'd like just post like, here's stuff we've already reviewed that we liked. And here's like a few movies that are coming up this week for the first time, or we haven't seen yet. This is what's playing in the theater that we just would like locally. And yeah. Cool. Yeah. I like that idea. So yeah, check that out. If you're in new Orleans and you needed some recommendations, of what to see in the theater and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.